everybody. Welcome back to Crime Weekly. I'm Stephanie Harlow. And I'm Derek Levasseur. So today we're diving into part six of the Dan Markell series. But before we do, we just want to give a quick reminder that e- that tickets for CrimeCon coming up in May, at the end of May in Nashville, are available now. And if you use our code Crime Weekly, you will get a discount on your badge for CrimeCon. And uh, we were basically talking about it a little bit in Crime Weekly News, but we've already sold a ton of passes and we'd like to sell as many as possible. We'd like to have as many people who are supporting Crime Weekly, as many Crime Weekly family members in Nashville at CrimeCon as possible so we can take over the whole convention because we roll deep when we go to CrimeCon. The more the merrier, the more people that are there, the more fun we're going to have. So go to CrimeCon.com or just click the link that's going to be in the description box. Use code CRIMEWEEKLY. Get a discount on your CrimeCon badge. And let's just take over this entire convention. What, Stephanie, what's your goal for CrimeCon 2024? Total domination. That's that's her goal. Yes, total domination. So obviously CrimeCon goes to different places every year. And they've all been great. They Obviously, there's a method to their madness when they're selecting locations. But I will say, and we've both been there for uh, podcast movement, Nashville's awesome. If you haven't been to Nashville, you definitely want to check it out. So yes, the convention will be there. A lot of the people that you listen to or watch will be there as well. It's a huge event. But in addition to that, if you're going down there with family members or friends, it's a great opportunity to visit a new place and you'll you'll have a great time. I can promise you that. So we hope to see you there. Uh, We will be there for sure. Yeah, we will. And uh, like last time, we'll have coffee. We'll have merch. Uh, We usually stay in the booth. We were in the booth almost the entire time. Couldn't leave the booth. We really didn't. Yeah. We really didn't. We were there almost the entire time. But that was great because we had the line the whole time and we got to meet everybody and that was awesome. So like I'd rather be able to meet everyone than to just be like wandering about, you know, aimlessly. I agree. I agree. It's a great time. We hope to see you there. Uh, and we will keep you guys updated if anything changes as far as any discounts or anything. But right now, the best price you're going to get is to go over to CrimeCon.com, use our code CRIMEWEEKLY. I believe it's 10%, and it's all it's all that's left is standard badges. But that will get you everything you need. You have full access to us, so it won't inhibit you at all. Definitely recommend the standard pass if that's what's left. Yeah, it's going to be fun. The gold VIP and platinum VIP are already sold out. Standard badges are still there. And you can get our discount and you can come hang out with us and we're going to have a great time. So, yeah, party. Party in Stephanie wants to be carried around on one of those, like, chairs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, like, we can just, like, roll around the hotel and be like, this is our convention. This is Crime Weekly. Get us kicked out. Con. This might be our last one. (laughs) Yeah, they'll be like, you guys just, you know, you brought too many people with you. And we'll be like, that's how we roll. Not a bad thing. Entourage. So, So Dan Markell. Part six, where we've been going through the details, all the little nuances of this case. Mm-hmm. And I believe last time we led off, we left off with with Charles Adelson. Adelson, I've heard it both ways, by the way. I was talking to someone this weekend about the names in the story, and it reminds me a lot of my last name. Because I've heard uh, Levasseur, Lavasser, Lavasser. 
per Nancy Grace. That was a Love new one. Love us your. Love us your. So I've heard it different ways. Some of you guys will correct us in the comments and you, you, you give us the different pronunciations. You may be right. We're doing a lot of cases. We do research it. But if you go to news outlet, uh, outlet videos or you go to the uh, actual court cases, they all pronounce it a little differently. We try our best. In the trial, in the trial, everybody's saying Adelson. So. Adelson. But if you watch the bump video, the, the undercover officer says he, Adelson. He's, he's mispronouncing it on purpose. Which he might they, be. That, he no, might that's be. what he said he, they, they, he said he did. He's, he, there was an interview with him? Not with him, but with like the main guy during the trial when he was um, on the stand, like the main guy, you know, he he mentions like, oh, and um, uh, I forget the agent's name who was undercover and who approached Donna Sue, but he said something like, oh, she, he like purposely mispronounced her name so there or you something go. to sort of, you know, um, and, and, act like almost act like I know you, but I don't really know you. You know yeah, what I mean? And the other, the other name is... Uh, Catherine uh, Magbanua or Magbana or Magbanua. I've heard a, hundred, a, a few different ways, and you guys are writing phonetically in there. We're trying our best. We're doing all these names. So let's focus on the information, the case. We're going to do our best with the name pronunciations. Some of them are not the easiest. Um, my understanding, and I've been saying it this way too, it's uh, Magbanua, but then there's also been people who said Magbanua. Magbanua sounds like it might be a... Yeah, it might be it. Listen, yeah. we're not arguing. I've heard it in, at the civil. I did look this up. The court case, the video of the sentencing, Magbanawa was the way yeah. they said it. We're trying. We're trying right, here. Yeah. So we're bear trying. with us. Yeah. Bear with us. We, we are doing our best. We're not doing it intentionally. No, we're not trying to piss you off. <laughs> but it's a lot of names. That I mean, and Stephanie, it's mostly you that's having. To, I'm writing them down. But you do a great job with this. Yeah, and I'm the worst person. I'm the worst person for names because I have ADHD and my brain is not normal and I'll see things. And then once I say it the wrong way once, it's almost like it's cemented in my brain that way. Well, in fairness to you, some of the people that are correcting our pronunciations are the same people spelling my name, D-E-R-E-K, when hmm. my name comes across the screen every week, D-E-R-R-I-C-K. That is so, true. And we're we're about three years into this bad boy. <laughs> There's been a few ep. We're what have we what have we done? Like almost two hundred episodes. Feels like it. Feels I like two thousand. Yeah. <laughs> yikes! <laughs> Enough to know your name. Enough. So again, it's all in fun. We don't take it seriously. We hope you don't. I don't give a shit when people. I'd love you to spell my name right, but again, it's one of those things where we're, we're Honestly, trying. Honestly, these best. are the perpetrators as well. Like I'm not yeah. really overly concerned. These people took somebody's life, took a father away from his sons. Yeah, I'm not exactly. super overly concerned about giving them the respect to say their name. If it's properly a victim's name, that's time. a good point. If it's a victim's name, we really emphasize yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah. And also it was funny. We were recording. Uh, I'm like, at this point, I'm like, Stephanie, just say Katie. <laughs> yeah. Gonna- Cause I was having, I've been having a lot of, I, I have to, I wrote it phonetically. Mag Banua. Um, on <laughs> Even my, then you on just my notebook, on my note, Mag Banua. It's, I think it's Magbanawa. Magbanawa? See, See here's here the, exactly. Magbanawa. Let's go Either with that. Either way, like Let's go with it's, that tonight. it's not easy, all right? <laughs> Clearly, we're proof we're proving it. <laughs> so, again, there's no we're not Especially trying to be disrespectful. You're talking anyway. fast and like that Magbanawa like in my mouth feels wrong. We're going to call her so, K-Dog tonight. Yeah, KDM. So, KDM. KDM. <laughs> um so what I was saying, Charles Adelson that's kind of where we left off last week. We're really getting into the to the case now. We had the bump last week as well. So that's kind of how this trickled off where they they target Donna. I'm sure there was a rationale behind that. They probably saw her as the weak link, maybe with the 
where they could actually infiltrate this case where she would get the most, the anxiety would be the highest with her. She'd be the most. They didn't know they were dealing with an ice cold bitch, yeah, no, honestly, because yeah. she she rolled with it. Charlie's like, pay, pay them the, the ransom. And, and Donna's like, I, I got this. You're not getting a cent from me, mister. Go to yeah, the police. I, mean, I wish you would. <laughs> the bump operation is, and I think we talked about this last week, but essentially all you're trying to do is elicit a specific response. When I was undercover, what we would do bump operations for, and we didn't necessarily call them bump operations, but we would already have a wire or a video tail on this target. So we might have the target of the investigation. We may know the drug dealer. We may see them make multiple hand-to-hand transactions, but we don't know where they're storing their drugs or the money. And it could be two separate houses. So what I would do or what another undercover agent would do, we'd infiltrate that group. We'd build a rapport with them. And essentially, at some point, you want to nudge them or bump them where you say, hey, listen, man, you know, I got your back. Word on the street is so-and-so, your competitor, they're going to rob you tonight. They're going to catch a lick, as we used to, they used to call it. They're going to catch a lick tonight. They're going to they're going for the money and the drugs. Really? Yeah. All right. Thanks for the heads up. We I walk away. But the other surveillance team is monitoring this person or their phones or in you know with video. And normally, most of the time, because of that anxiety we've now created through that social engineering, what are they going to do? They're going to go right to the houses where the money and the drugs are. So now just with that little nudge, we have all the addresses where the, the whole operation is and we can build our case off of that. So that's what it's intended to do. There are some people, and I just had a conversation with a defense attorney this weekend, shout out Sarah Azari. She was like, you know, I, I don't like these. They, they're, they're very close to being entrapment. If you don't have the goods on the person, you shouldn't be able to do this. And as I said to her, and I'll say it now, you have to remember, and you have to go look at that video. The undercover detective never asked or incentivized Donna to commit a crime, which negates the whole premise of entrapment, right? She, he didn't ask her to go do something. And she, from what we know, never committed a crime after that, simply The detectives, they threw um, a line in the water. She took the bait and essentially incriminated herself and her son even more, which is only confirming what investigators' suspicions were anyways. So that's essentially what it is. It's not more than that. It doesn't always work. But obviously, as we're going to get into more tonight, this is what exposed us to Charles Adelson. And I think that's where we're starting tonight as well, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about with, Charlie. Good old Charlie. About Charlie. Yeah. All right. So nicknamed Screech during his time at Terravella High School, Charlie Adelson was scrawny, skinny, but surprisingly athletic, especially on the tennis court. During his time at the University of Central Florida, where he majored in micro and molecular biology, Charlie began working out and developed a fit, muscular body that girls began taking notice of. Charlie Adelson also developed a liking for sex and guns. It was said that he kept a gun underneath the driver's seat of his car. And although he didn't perform as well academically as his sister Wendy or his brother-in-law Dan Markell, Charlie did finish in the top 15% of his class before moving on to Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale. In 2003, Charlie got his dental license and started his residency at the Adelson Institute, which would be renamed to the Adelson Institute for Aesthetics and Implant Dentistry after Charlie became a specialist in periodontics. 
A periodontist has special expertise in gum disease, and they also focus on treating the structures that support your teeth, along with placing dental implants. With Charlie being trained in extractions, implants, and bone grafts, he was able to start bringing a lot more money to the Adelson Institute and into his own pocket. By 2012, Harvey Adelson sold Charlie the practice, which was great, but Charlie wasn't happy with that completely because he was building an empire. Using his superficial charm and megawatt smile, Charlie Adelson formed relationships with other dental practices all over South Florida where he would travel several times a week to perform procedures. He also owned and operated a New York-style deli called Nosh, and it was rumored that he had once hired an individual with Down syndrome to dress up and dance outside of the deli, while Charlie made fun of him to anyone who would listen. According to Wendy, in her interview with Detective Craig Isom, her brother Charlie worked a lot, from very early in the morning until late at night, and he rewarded himself for the hours he put in. Parked in the garage of his over $1 million, over 10,000-square-foot mansion in Fort Lauderdale were several luxury cars, including a Ferrari with a vanity plate that read Maestro, a self-given nickname. In its most used form, maestro usually refers to someone who is very skilled at playing or conducting classical music, an artistic genius, if you will. And maybe Charlie felt that his dental implants were literal artistic masterpieces, but at its most boiled down, maestro is from the Italian word meaning master or teacher. So maybe Charlie's use of this word as his nickname may have been more about his control over others, the way he could pull their strings and make them dance, the way he was superior to those around him, and they were all there to serve him. Whichever way he meant it, Charlie Adelson certainly thought very highly of himself, often posting shirtless pictures of his muscled physique on social media and seeking validation from the many women who were drawn to his looks, money, and status. Charlie earned a reputation for being a ladies' man, the kind of guy who couldn't keep his eyes on one woman no matter how beautiful she was, and his sex drive was never satiated, so he made multiple sex tourism trips out of the country. When he moved to South Florida in 2012, Ryan Fitzpatrick became close with Charlie Adelson, and eventually they would become business partners. I met Charlie through mutual friends. Uh, You know, Charlie went to UCF. I went to University of Florida. So what were your initial impressions of him? Charlie, uh, successful, charismatic guy, uh, maestro or whatever, a little bit annoying, a little bit arrogant, but he was fun to be around. And then when all this started coming to fruition, it was hard to be around him. It was annoying. He was agitated, very self-centered, very uh, narcissistic, very just everything was about him. You know, he would never call me up and say, hey, how's your day going? It was about him and his problems. And I would be like, well, you created these problems. So you knew him during that time that he was dating Katie. So what were your impressions of her? I only met Katie in passing. And to be honest, I didn't pay attention to any of the girls that Charlie had around. It was just like, whatever. You know, like, hey, how you doing? I'm not like, hey, want to get to know you. I didn't care because it was yeah, just. Yeah, he had so many, right? Yes, he did. The maestro did. Yes, ma'am. Why did, how did you wind up doing business together? Charlie had a lot of money and I got into a legal funding business where he and another partner 
or the I guess the money guys or whatever that gave me a credit line and I would loan money, advance money on their potential injury settlements and I would buy medical receivables for personal injury lawsuits. And it just, you know, looking back, I mean, maybe they were trying to use me to launder money or something. I don't know. Uh, it obviously didn't work out well, as you've heard in testimony, but it was good for a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, Charlie had more money and you know what to do with. Yeah, hard money lending. Something that's used a lot, but it's not always on the most up and up. What is hard money lending? So I'm not an expert on this, and I'm sure I'm going to get roasted in the comments, but my understanding is essentially there, there's people out there that obviously have more money than they know what to do with, right? And they'll be a middleman where they may have a client who wants to buy a property. I'm, I'm going in the context of real estate from, from, from what I understand, where the property they're going to buy, they, don't, they can't take a loan out on it, so they're going to buy the property through a hard money lender, which is an individual and this middleman will connect you to their hard money guy and they the hard money lender will come in and buy the property outright so let's say it's $100,000 they'll pay for it in cash so now that hard money lender owns the property and then they will you'll pay the loan back to them at a higher interest rate than you would to a bank now there's not a ton oh. of protections in these there's not a ton of protections in these, in these situations. There are some. Obviously, there's contracts. You can The hard money lender can go after them civilly. But from what I have understand, the hard money lenders are usually people you don't want to cross. And so if you are late on a payment or you stop paying at all, they're not necessarily going to go through the, the, the court systems, right? There's other ways uh, to, to uh, incentivize you to pay. Mm-hmm. So it's a dangerous game you could be playing with this type of money. I'm not putting a... Um, a, cl- a black cloud over hard money lending because some people do do it. They want to do cash buys and it's completely legitimate and it's contractually you know, protected, whatever. But there is it's a game with it. It's definitely a game and it's it's a different system. So it, I, I'm, I'm making it very simple here what they were doing. But it seems like Charlie was investing or hard money lending out to these other individuals who wanted to buy this ma- medical sales equipment. And again, it's high return. You could be getting charged, you know, 10, 12 percent to pay the hard money lender back. So it's an opportunity for Charlie to throw in a hundred grand and maybe make 120, 130 really fast. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about this next episode, but there was some shady things allegedly happening with, with some of the Adelson's finances. And we're going to get into that next time. But during this interview that Ryan Fitzpatrick had with the YouTube channel, AA Legal Focus, he mentioned how he would always make fun of Charlie for giving him money that was stapled. And Charlie would testify at trial that he'd always been fond of collecting cash since he was a little boy. And he would keep this cash at his home, stapled together in stacks of $1,000. This little idiosyncrasy that Charlie had would come back to bite him when the police arrested Luis Rivera for the murder of Dan Markell and began questioning him. Now, initially, Rivera denied having any involvement in the murder of Dan Markell, only changing his story when he was faced with the ATM photographs showing himself and Sigfredo Garcia in the rented Prius. Luis admitted that he had rented the car, but that he had done this so that he and Garcia could visit the Florida State campus. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, so nobody believed that. Luis Rivera would not give police anything further until he was assigned a court-appointed lawyer who immediately got to work trying to secure his client a deal with law enforcement. The deal that was eventually offered was as follows. Rivera would plead guilty to second-degree murder with a sentence of 19 years, and in return, he would have to tell the police and the prosecutors everything he knew about Dan Markell's death. Since he was already behind bars for other crimes, Luis Rivera would and inevitably only serve an additional six years for his part in the murder for hire plot. We're gonna take our first break, we'll be right back. Go Henry is a debit card and financial learning app for kids ages 6 through 18. It teaches kids and teens how to be independent and smart with money by helping them track their spending, budgets, savings, goals, and more, all with support and guidance from their parents. One of the best things you can do for your kids is to teach them how to manage money, and this should be started when they're little. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids ages 6 to 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They will learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey and stay informed every step of the way. I seriously wish that I had this as a kid. I had to learn about money the hard way as an adult. If my parents had set me up with Go Henry as a kid, learning to adult would have been so much easier. Set your kids up for success and get started today at GoHenry.com slash crime. Terms and conditions apply. Renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. So Luis Rivera told detectives that he'd been approached by his childhood friend, Sigfrido Garcia, and Garcia told Luis he had a job for them to do. Was there a time when Mr. Garcia approached you about coming to Tallahassee? Yes, ma'am. And when was that? 2014. Okay. Do you know how long before the homicide it was that Mr. Garcia first approached you about coming to Tallahassee? A few months. All right. And what did Mr. Garcia say when he approached you about coming to Tallahassee? He just said, um, I got a job. He gave me a job I got to go do. He said he had a job? Yes, ma'am. And the job was in Tallahassee? Yes, ma'am. And did he ask you to come with him? Yes, ma'am. Did you ask any questions about what the nature of the job was, why you needed to go all the way to Tallahassee, or anything like that? No, ma'am. Why not? Uh, that's just my best friend, and I trust him. So you were automatically in to do whatever it was he wanted you to do? Whatever he wanted to do, I would have rolled. All right. Was money discussed as far as how you'd be compensated for this job? Yeah. Tell us about that. Um, he was going to give me some money. He said, take a ride with me over to uh, Tallahassee, and um, I'll give you some money. Did he say how much? At that moment, yeah, he did. Thirty-five. All right, 35 what? 35000 You were going to get $35,000 for this job? Yes, ma'am. All right. And did you have another conversation in the car on the way to Tallahassee? Yes, ma'am. How many trips did you make to Tallahassee? Like tw twice. All right, and were both trips with Mr. Garcia? Yes, ma'am. Was anybody else in the car on either of those trips? Not at all. All right, tell us about the conversation on the way to Tallahassee. Was this the first trip or the second trip? This, um, the first trip. All right, tell us about that. 
It was just taking a ride up there. <clears throat> my concern, I thought I was gonna go rob him. Oh. Say that again? Hey, my concern, I thought I was gonna go rob him. You thought you were coming to Tallahassee to do a robbery? Yes, ma'am. Did you assume that, or did somebody tell you that? No, I assumed I'm like, you know, it was just a job. All right. So you knew it was a job in Tallahassee, and you assumed it was a robbery. Did you learn something additional about what it was on the way to Tallahassee? Yeah, on the way coming up, like halfway there, we just... He said we're going to have to um, kill the man. So said you were going to have to kill the man? Yeah. And what was the second part of what you said? For some kids. For some kids. All right. Anything else? What did that mean to you, kill the man for some kids? That's for a lady. Um, I guess the lady wanted her kids back. Luis Rivera asked Sigfredo Garcia who exactly had hired him for this job. And Garcia responded that Katie had told him some lady was paying for the hit. The paper that Garcia showed Rivera was a picture of Dan Markell along with his name and address. And the first time they drove to Tallahassee, they sat outside of Dan's house and waited for him to leave. When he did leave, the two men followed him in their rented Nissan. But after he dropped his sons off at school, Rivera and Garcia lost Dan's trail. Feeling that the day was a loss, the two men went to their hotel room, got drunk, and smoked weed. The next morning, they once again followed Dan to his son's preschool, but they must have missed him leaving the building, and they lost him again. So they went back to the hotel to drink, and this time they did cocaine. The short trip to Tallahassee was expensive. Garcia had been given $5,000 in cash for expenses, and when they headed back to Miami, they only had $600 left. Now, this mainly was from buying weed. And cocaine. On their first drive to Tallahassee, Katie called Sigfredo Garcia multiple times to make sure he was following the plan. And Luis Rivera heard Garcia tell Katie, this lady better have the money. And Katie responded, telling the father of her children to make sure he did everything right and not to do anything stupid. Of course, Luis Rivera would claim that even after he knew that the job was to kill Dan Markell, he still felt like he was just along for the ride and he had no intention of killing anyone, saying, quote, I wouldn't have enough balls to fucking shoot somebody for some kids, man. My mind was like, for some kid? We're going to kill this guy for some fucking kids? Are you serious? Why can't she just get full custody? End quote. Luis Rivera was also helpful when it came to the murder weapon. He told Detective Isom that both he and Sigfredo drove to Tallahassee with a gun. Rivera had a black 38 caliber Smith & Wesson that he'd purchased from someone in his neighborhood for $150, and Garcia had his own personal 38 caliber Taurus, which he wanted to use to kill Dan. They also purchased 12 bullets in Miami, but at the end of the day, they'd lost Dan twice, so they returned home with no plan to go back to Tallahassee. Rivera speculated that the only reason he and Sigfrido returned to follow through with Dan's murder was because Sigfrido was deeply jealous of Katie's relationship with her rich dentist boyfriend, and maybe she had promised the father of her children that if he did this for her, there was a chance they could get back together and be a family again. They returned to Tallahassee on Wednesday, July 16th, 2014, and they returned to Dan's house the following morning. And that's when Luis Rivera claims they saw Wendy Adelson. Where was the lady? She was towards, she was towards my right hand side towards his house. Mark towards Hill's whose house? house? Towards Markel's house? Mm-hmm. Okay. Was she in the street, on the sidewalk, or sidewalk. Else? Okay. Did she have children with her? Yes, ma'am. Two. All right. What happened when you saw this lady? Did she see you? Yeah, she looked at the car. 
I was driving and um, I looked through my rear mirror, I seen her looking. Mm-hmm. So what I asked, happened next? I asked her, what's up with this lady while she looking at the car? Yeah, that's that lady with the kids, man. So you asked Garcia, hey, who's this lady that's looking at the car? Yes, ma'am. And he said, that's the lady with the kids. Yes, ma'am. What did you take that to mean? That's the lady that wanted the kids. The, the lady that wanted you to do this job? Yes, ma'am. All right. And were you worried about seeing her there? Yes, ma'am. Were you worried about her seeing you there? Of course. What did you do once you see this lady and Garcia tells you that's the lady that wants this job done? We, we drove off. We left. Did Garcia make a phone call about seeing the lady? Well, I'm looking through the rear mirror and I seen her making a phone call. I saw okay. her get on the phone. The lady that you saw on the sidewalk? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And then y'all drove off? We drove off. Okay. And did Mr. Garcia, after seeing that and driving off, did he make any phone calls? After we don't bend at the corner, I see mm -hmm. he got on the phone. All right. And who did he get on the phone with? I believe he got on the phone with Katie. How do you know it was Katie he got on the phone with? Because she, like, the way he was talking, it's only her. He, don't, he only talks to her. All right. And what do you mean the way he was talking? How are you able to tell? Like, um, when he spoke to her, she like, yeah, um, y'all get out of there. The lady just seen you. All right. And so y'all were worried about this lady having seen you? I was worried. You were? Yes, ma'am. Now, when Rivera had spoken to police years before this, when he was first questioned about his part in Dan Markell's murder, he had some additional details about this alleged Wendy Adelson sighting. Now, I put this in here because it's it's very important. I don't want to seem biased. I don't want to just put in the stuff that makes it look like all of these people are guilty. What I wanted to do is show you that maybe Luis Rivera isn't the most legitimate of witnesses, especially considering he was involved, especially considering he very much tried to downplay his own part in this. And I do think that this entire story about seeing Wendy Adelson at Dan Markell's house when they were, you know, stalking him and, and kind of casing the place is totally made up. It does call into question how much we can trust what Luis Rivera is saying because the Markell boys were at preschool that morning and they could not have been with Wendy on Trescott Drive at the time that Luis Rivera claims he saw them. So what I what I want to keep in mind is you you can't believe just what you want to believe from Luis Rivera because it kind of supports your narrative and what you're already thinking and then completely discount the things he says that are provably false. And you have to kind of keep in mind this may not be the most reliable narrator. They never are. Yeah. They never are. When you have someone who's not there on their under well they're there under their own free will, but let's be honest, they the the, the other option is life in prison. Mm -hmm. So they don't really have a choice and what I have found in these types of cases, 99% of the time, even when they agree to cooperate, they still just give you just enough. You have to pull 
every single fact out of them. They don't offer or volunteer anything. You kind of saw a glimpse of it in this testimony where this prosecutor has to ask essentially like a leading question through through the entire ordeal because he's given like the one word answers. Well, were you offered money? Yeah. Oh, how much? 35. 35, 35, how much? 35 grand or 3,500? 35,000. It's like they just, they can feel that undertone of like I'm snitching, but at the same time I need to. And you got to literally pull it out of them. Like it's literally like pulling teeth. Boom. No pun intended. Yeah. Uh, consider, but Charlie would know about that, huh? That's, that's the, yeah, that's the pun. <laughs> so it's one of those things where, yeah, he's going to tell officers what they need to know. And obviously there is truth to what he's saying because they can corroborate it through the facts of the case and the video and all this stuff. And this this conversation that happened, uh, the second video that was played out of the first two videos, this is a video that a lot of people who believe Wendy Adelson was directly involved hang their hat on. Because mm, when you that. first hear it, even when you hear the testimony at court, Mm-hmm. He's implying that Wendy knew who they were. And she was making sure they were, they were doing the job. Yeah, she, she knew why they were there. And even in that last clip, it was almost like Wendy had called Katie and then Katie talked to Sigfredo Garcia and was like, hey, she saw you get out of there. There could be, like you said, we've already disproven his exact remembrance of what happened that day. The kids were at school. But there could be a world where if she's not involved, right? where they're aware that they're doing this job for this woman, Wendy Adelson, but it's being facilitated through mom or or brother. And it's not necessarily with at Wendy's direction, even though the whole thing is for Wendy and her kids. And I will say that the fact that when they saw her, they got scared that they she would see them that a little bit contradicts the idea that she's in on it. Like, what would they be afraid of her seeing them? Because- she knows they're coming. She's expecting them. So the fact that they want to get out of there before being seen by her could suggest that maybe they know who they're there for, but not necessarily who they're working for. Mm-hmm. Just just the other side of the coin. Yeah. And I mean, I think that um, I didn't know that people hung their hat on this, but if you had just watched this. Yeah. Some people say, oh, when, oh, Wendy knew they were they were working for Wendy, not Donna. Yeah, if you just saw it and you didn't like actually do the research, to, they they tried to avoid even talking about this, the prosecutors, during the trial because they knew he had made it up. And, and they knew that the defense is already going to look for a reason of why Luis Rivera can't be trusted because he's their he, he's their their guy that he's the prosecution's guy. He's, he's a key breaking witness. it all open. Yeah. Yep. And he gets a sweet deal. You know, you took part in a murder and you're only serving six additional years in prison. And so they're going to keep trying to focus on this now. Like you said, there's there's a lot of things that Luis Rivera did cop to where they can verify this through timelines, through having, you know, the cell ATM records. photos, cell phone records. They can yep, verify, absolutely. oh, well, uh, Sigfrido then called Katie after we left. They can verify that. Yep. But the things that they can't verify, they're not going to focus on, which is fine because what they could verify was enough to prove that both Sigfrido Garcia and Luis Rivera were present at the time of Dan Markell's murder. And let's hey, let's not skate over what you said too, because it all is very important. This entire event for for Luis Rivera was kind of a vacation. He's out there drinking, smoking, yeah, doing getting coke. high on cocaine, all on someone else's dime. Mm-hmm. So more than likely, eighty percent of the time that he was in Tallahassee. He don't even remember half of it because he was so out of it. 100%. So that's also an element we have to consider. He was talking a lot about 
um, Siegfriedo, right? And how Siegfriedo's always drunk. Siegfriedo's always high. And he he was actually getting agitated at some point. So I feel like it's true because he showed some emotion. He's like, every time, man, I turn around, this guy's like drunk. And I'm like, what are we doing here? You know, like, why yeah. are you drunk again? And he's getting like kind of agitated. So yeah, they definitely weren't in the most um, coherent, yeah, the most (laughs) coherent mind states. But Luis Rivera was able to fill in the blanks for detectives about the last moments of Dan Markell's life. On the way to the murder, I see only your car, the Prius, turning onto Benton Road. I do not see Mr. Markell's. Why is that? We went the other, he, um, he went one way and went the other way. And what do you mean by that? He turned before you or after you? He turned before me. Okay, so he turned to get to his house another way, and you turned on Benton. Yes, the corner of his house. Okay, that corner right there by the park? Yes, ma'am. All right, and so when you were approaching Mr. Markell's residence, was he coming from the other direction? Yes, ma'am. What happened once the two of y'all were headed toward each other? He pulled in, and I I pulled right right behind him. How close did you get up behind him? Very close. All right, and what was Mr. Markell doing when you pulled up? behind him. He was on the phone. All right, still seated in the driver's seat of his vehicle? Yes, ma'am. And what happened once you pulled into his driveway? Soon as pulled in, Garcia jumped off, jumped out of the car and went around. Not around, but in front of my, in front of the car. Mm-hmm. Right behind his car and in front of um, the car I was driving. Went to the um, driver's side and shot him. He shot Mr. Markell? Yes, ma'am. How many times? Twice. Did you actually see Mr. Garcia shoot Mr. Markell? Of course. Were the shots close together? Yes, ma'am. On their way back to Miami, Rivera pulled off the highway onto a bridge and Garcia threw the murder weapon into the water below. Then they called Katie Magbanua and told her the job was done. The following day, Luis Rivera traveled to the home of his then-girlfriend, Jessica, where he says Katie and Sigfrido were waiting with a bag of money. All right, and tell us about the money. How was it packaged? It was in a brown, um, a brown bag. Like a brown paper bag or a plastic? A brown paper bag. All right. And what about inside the brown paper bag? It was like a little clear plastic, a, a plastic bag inside of it as well. All right. And what was inside the clear plastic bag? Money. All hundreds. All hundreds? Yes, ma'am. And did you count the money? No. How do you know how much was there? Because I trust them. All right. So you were told it was 35000 Yes, ma'am. And did it seem like about that much to you? Yes, ma'am. And... You said it was all hundreds. Were they um, separated at all into stacks? They were stapled. Stapled? A thousand dollars stapled, each each one of them. So stacks of hundreds stapled together with like a stapler? Yeah, with a stapler. Not all of them together, but a thousand dollars each was stapled. Okay. So you had a bunch of stacks of hundred dollar bills that were stapled into stacks of a thousand. Yes, ma'am. But there was something else significant about this money, and we'll hear about what that was from Katie Magbanua, who would testify that she had received an envelope of information about Dan Markell from Charlie Adelson. And when Dan was dead, she picked up the money from Charlie as well. Louis Rivera said there was a paper that Sufredo had when they came to do the murder. Do you know anything about that paper? No, ma'am, I don't. All right. Did you provide a paper to Sigfredo Garcia? Yes, I did. All right, and when you say you don't know anything about it, but you gave it to him, you obviously know something about it, right? Yes, ma'am. Tell us how you came into possession of this paper that the killers had. Okay, one day, um, just 
a random night that I was over at Charlie's house. He had a manila envelope that was sealed. He told me, Katie, do not open it. Do not touch it. Do not look inside it. I didn't print this paper out from my office, printed it probably from another office and basically relate, you know, give that paper to the other person. Right. And who is saying this? This was Charlie. Right. This defendant? Yes, ma'am. So he says to you, I have this paper. How does he give it to you? I had a diaper bag, so he showed me the envelope and I was like, just put it in there. Did he express any concerns about fingerprints being on the envelope or the contents? Yes, ma'am. He said he wore a glove so that there's no fingerprints on it. He was he told he was very specific about me not opening it and not looking inside it and he also told me that he didn't print it from his office all right and what about licking the envelope and that he didn't lick the envelope he said he did not lick the envelope. he did not lick that what was the purpose of that yes his dna how was the money packaged when you got it it was in um it was in a plastic the money was in a plastic bag like a ziploc bag that was inside a brown bag and then like a grocery bag over it and was the money stapled yes ma'am it was can you explain how it was stapled like what size bills and what increments were stapled together uh i believe it was stapled and i never counted it but it was like in a stack and it was stapled in the corner right. were they hundred dollar bills or something else they were hundred dollar bills and there was some 20s and 50s Okay. And was the money damp? Yes, ma'am, it was. Explain what, what you mean to the jury. Um, a couple days after that, um, I went and I opened the bag and I called Sigfredo and I told him, I was like, there's mold on this money. And he's like, well, blow dry it. And I was like, but why would there be mold on the money? And he's just, I don't know, just blow dry it. So um, I believe his parents, or his mom might have washed the the money. You mean like physically washed the money? Yes, ma'am. And why do you think his mom did it? Because he oh he was always adamant about telling me he didn't have any money in his house. And he told me that his parents had just stopped by right before I got there. Okay. So all of a sudden he had money to put in my in the trunk of my car the was following the morning. money i'm sorry i interrupted you i'm sorry was the money already sorted out and packaged when you first saw it or was he doing that no it was already stacked and sorted out okay and did he have to so he didn't have to go anywhere to get the money he already had it when you arrived yes ma'am so the 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 washing of the money this is uh an interesting thing for me because my when I hear washing or cleaning the money, usually it relates to a behavior. You'll drop right, it off correct, yeah. at the casino or the strip club and you'll, you'll take five, $500, you'll drop it off. They'll give you 500 in poker chips. You go play one or two games and then you cash out and now they're giving you $480 back, but it's different money. So you've, Clean you've, money, right, you've gotten rid of yeah. the money that you stole from the bank or whatever. There is an art, there are... And I'm not an expert in this, but there are times where if using counterfeit money to make it look less new and more worn and harder to detect that it's fake, 
they will wash and dry the money in a in a in a machine mm-hmm. to create the the illusion that it's worn and run down and old, right? But in this particular circumstance, I don't know 100% what their rationale would be. Maybe it would be to remove their potential DNA from it by washing the money and not really drying it off well. And therefore, obviously, water, paper is going to create mold, especially if in a dark, uh, contained uh, environment, like a bag. So that could be part of it. But normally when you hear about drying off money, like physically drying it off, my limited knowledge of that is usually for counterfeit money, which I don't believe the money in this situation was fake. It was real money. Um, So it could have been a situation where they physically washed the money because they had watched a movie or something and Mm -hmm. they felt like that was part of the process where if you wanted to remove your DNA or create the illusion that it wasn't directly pulled from a bank, maybe like new money, like an ATM, you wash it to give that appearance of being old. I mean, that's my best speculative guess on it. So no one really knows. And even the prosecutor was like, she what the money was physically washed because I think yeah. it's like you might so, hear sound like, like oh, so unexperienced. Criminal. Yeah. Like, oh, you have to clean the money. And, and maybe if you didn't know what that meant and you also didn't want to start Googling it and looking up what it meant, you might be like, oh, well, I'll just wash physically the money. clean the money. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be clean. So uh, some people think that it was done. To, I mean, the only reason I can think it would be done would be to wash fingerprints and, and DNA off of it. Like maybe this is money you already had in your home and you didn't know how many times you'd handle that and you just wanted to avoid that issue. So you you washed it. Um, I don't even know if that would work, but I think it I think it would. I don't it would, know. It would make it harder, especially if they're using like some type of detergent or whatever. I guess it would make it harder because yeah. I mean, we do have the ability to use different chemicals that'll enhance the oils in the in the paper that'll show an actual print. It, it will. Um, so I could see the need to do that. But again, this is something where if you're printing new money, like counterfeit money, it looks it looks fake, because especially if it's not on the right type of paper. So to throw it off, you'll see criminals wrinkle up the money, crinkle it up, toss it around, you know, sh- shake it between their hands, maybe throw it in a dryer to give that illusion that it's kind of worn down and been circulated through the system a few times. That's normally when it's done. But yeah, you, I think on the surface level, they took cleaning money literally, and that's what they decided to do. Yeah. Also, apparently, I didn't know this, but it's illegal to staple U.S. currency. <laughs> so, oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah, I oh, guess. Interesting. Uh, weird, but that's the least of their problems. That's the least of their criminal activity. Yeah, I completely agree. They get bigger, but it does help investigators because it's something that's not a normal practice. Some people use, you know, paper bands or elastics, or mm-hmm, they'll exactly. fold it a certain way. This was a characteristic that multiple people outside of this investigation knew that this was a behavior Charlie did often. So this was something that was, I mean, how many people do you know as you're listening or watching this video staple their money? I mean, it's not a normal thing. So it does tie it back to someone. It's real weird, actually. A (laughs) hundred percent. And it's important when you're looking at this particular case because arguments could be made that maybe Katie did this on her own. But when the money's stapled together like that, it does tie to someone else. And that's what the prosecutor is trying to do here is to say, hey, listen, Charlie's sitting up here right now. They had her, they had Katie point to him in the, the, the courtroom. You know, Charlie's pro- saying, hey, listen, I wasn't involved. I don't know what you're talking about. And the prosecutor's saying, not so fast. We have stuff that links back to you based on the behavioral traits that are associated with this money. So 
as trivial as it is and as as minimal as it might seem, it's a really important fact. Yeah. And like like you said, multiple people had already testified to the fact that this is how Charlie kept his money. Even Charlie, when he's asked about it, he's like, yeah, I did keep my money like that. It's a habit since childhood. But it doesn't take like even I don't care if you've been doing it since you were three years old. That's how the money was given to them. You can't deny this. And that's it. So that that's going to tie right to him. And that's why when he goes to trial, he's going to have a defense, which we're going to talk about, of how this had nothing to do with him. Yes, it was his money, but he didn't willingly give it. Yep. Before we continue on, though, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Each HelloFresh box is packed with farm-fresh ingredients and everything arrives pre-portioned right to your doorstep for less hassle and less wasted food. That is why I love HelloFresh so much because not only do they give you exactly what you need for each recipe, which means you're not wasting any food, you're not buying things in bulk and then, you know, having it go bad. But I love that they send you a recipe card that has step-by-step instructions on how to prepare these meals and pictures included so it's literally impossible to mess up. And this time of year, everyone is looking to revamp their eating habits and get back on track so you can look to HelloFresh's wholesome health-forward options like over 30 calorie smart and protein smart recipes each week. HelloFresh is going to help you ditch your meal planning blues and the grocery store run with quick, convenient recipes delivered right to you. Just choose your meals and select your delivery date. HelloFresh handles the meal planning and shopping, so all you have to do is open your weekly box of fresh pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes to get cooking. We love HelloFresh here. Um, I think that the best part about HelloFresh is uh, how easy it is to make, so you can include the whole family. The kids can help. Like I said, step-by-step instructions, impossible to mess up, and the kids are going really want to eat what you've made if they have a part in preparing it. And every single HelloFresh recipe that we've ever had is just delicious. It's never a disappointment. It never tastes bad. It tastes like restaurant quality meals that you cooked yourself. And you feel good about it. You have pride in what you created because you made something delicious with your own hands. So HelloFresh is great. They also are offering uh, something very cool right now. They're giving all subscribers free breakfast for life. That means you'll enjoy a totally free breakfast item with every single HelloFresh delivery. And I think that's pretty That's pretty awesome. That's sweet. So we love HelloFresh. Derek's going to tell you how you can get started and check it out for yourself. Yeah, just go to HelloFresh.com slash free. And use our code CRIMEWEEKLYFREE for free breakfast for life. That's one breakfast item per box while your subscription is active. Once again, that's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash CRIMEWEEKLYFREE with our code CRIMEWEEKLYFREE. Go check them out. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. So in late 2016, some law enforcement theories on members of the Adelson family being connected to Dan Markell's murder were released to the public after a records request from the Tallahassee Democrat. The released documents claimed that Katie Magbanuel was the link between the two hitmen and the affluent Adelsons. 
The documents also outlined evidence we've already gone over. Wiretapped phone calls between Charlie and his mother and Katie. Checks signed by Donna Adelson paid out to Katie, even though she was not an actual employee at the Adelson Institute. And of course, the motive was also there for everyone to see. The documents maintained that Wendy Adelson's family had tried to convince her to pay her ex-husband $1 million so that she could take her two sons out of Tallahassee and relocate with them to the South Florida area. When that didn't work, the Adelsons began looking into higher a hitman, and Charlie arranged it through his then-girlfriend, Katie Magbanua. The Tallahassee Police Department was certain that they were on the right track and that one or more of the Adelsons were involved in this plot. However, state's attorney Willie Meggs publicly put himself in opposition to the police, calling their theories speculation and refusing to issue an arrest warrant for Charlie Adelson or Katie Magbanua. He said, quote, My opinion after reading these documents is there is no probable cause here to make an arrest. We kind of believe they were involved, according to the police, but what we believe and what we think doesn't count. What evidence do we have? When you read this stuff, you say these people have him killed. I don't read it like that. How do we prove this? End quote. The Adelson family rejoiced, and Charlie's lawyer put out a statement kissing Willie Meggs's ass, saying, quote, Mr. Meggs has spent the past 40 years as a prosecutor with 30 years as state's attorney, and before that he was a decorated police officer. He is one of the most experienced state's attorneys in their nation, and he knows probable cause when he sees it. We are thankful that he faithfully and honorably fulfilled his duties and did not approve the document, which amounted to no more than simple speculation after a truly exhaustive investigation, end quote. But that was before Luis Rivera pleaded guilty and implicated Katie as being the go-between in this whole murder plot. Katie Magbanua was arrested on October 1st, 2016 in the parking lot of a strip mall. Apparently, when she was approached by all these police officers, she urinated on herself because she was so terrified. And then she asked to call her lawyer before being read her rights and transported to the Broward County Jail. Now, directly after this, Before he'd even left the scene of Katie's arrest, Detective Craig Isom got a phone call from Charlie Adelson's lawyer, David Oscar Marcus. Marcus told Isom that if he had a warrant for Charlie's arrest, he didn't need to ambush him in the way they had just done to Katie. Charlie would go to Tallahassee and surrender. It was a generous offer, but the Tallahassee police were not ready to put cuffs on Charlie Adelson just yet. They had to talk to Katie first. And they offered Katie an even better deal than they'd given Luis Rivera. They told her that if she cooperated fully, they would consider letting her off completely, and she'd be back home with her kids before she knew it. As mystifying as it was to everyone, Katie refused to implicate Charlie Adelson, and so she remained behind bars. Almost immediately, the state talked to your lawyers and offered you full immunity, a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? I don't know if that was immediately. Pretty soon after you got arrested, you were offered to cooperate against Charlie Adelson and the other Adelsons, and you would get to go home to your kids, right? Yes, sir. But you didn't take the offer. No, I didn't. Instead, you stayed in jail for three years before your first trial, right? Yes, sir. You stayed in jail through COVID after your first trial hung. Yes, sir. You still didn't cooperate. The deal was still open, right? Well, the deal was to give up Charlie. And you couldn't do that? Because in order to give up Charlie, I had to give up Cradle, the father of my children, so I couldn't do that. So while you're in jail, sitting in jail, during COVID, 
that you knew there was still a deal possibility open for you, right? You could still take a deal. Your lawyers told you that. Before COVID, after my mistrial? Yes. I believe so. And you still didn't take the deal, right? No. Charlie Adelson didn't force you to take the deal, not take the deal, right? No, I had no communication with Charlie. He didn't pay for your attorneys. He didn't pay for my attorneys, but there, there was word that he was, my brother declined him paying for my attorneys. Ma'am, I, I know you have an agenda here, but just answer my questions. Yes, sir. Did Charlie Adelson pay for your attorneys? No, sir, he did not. Did anyone in the Adelson family pay for your attorneys? No, sir. Did anyone in the Adelson family pay any money to your kids? No, sir. The real reason you didn't cooperate and you made it clear because Charlie Adelson had absolutely nothing to do with the murder of Professor Markell. Isn't that the case? I didn't cooperate because in order to give, a, give up Charlie, I'd have to give up Sigfredo. Yeah, so obviously this video is Charlie's, Charlie's attorney and he's throwing a couple jabs in there. You know, you have an agenda, all these things, and it's pretty self-explanatory. He's trying to show her, like, you can't give up someone if you don't have the goods on them. That's what he's trying to say here. You didn't, you didn't give up Charlie because he wasn't involved. You couldn't give law enforcement what they wanted, even though they offered you the son. They offered you everything. Yeah. Yeah. But you couldn't give them what they want. You couldn't deliver on what they needed in order to, to fulfill that deal because any person in their right mind would have taken it, would have taken that deal immediately. But her argument's simple. Yeah, I would have gave up Charlie in a second, but I didn't want to give up the father of my ki my children. And in order to do that, I, ha I wasn't going to be able to give law enforcement a partial story. I was going to have to implicate everyone, which included someone I really cared about. The and father herself, of my kids. herself, too, because she's saying she's completely innocent. She, the whole time she's in prison these three years, she's completely innocent. She has no idea what they're talking about. She did not set anything up with Charlie. So she also, I think, doesn't want to, to implicate herself. She maybe herself. thinks it's a trick. Maybe thinks it's a trick. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I'm sure they relate to her. Listen, we know you were involved. We know you facilitated everything. We will cut you. You didn't actually kill Dan Markell. You were just a messenger. If you tell us what happened and who was involved... You will go free. And frankly, if I'm Dan Markell's family, obviously I'd want everyone. But if there was a world where we didn't have a case and we could, we had to let one person go in order for them to work with us, Katie would be the person. Right. Because she's just a cog in the machine. But well, I would want yeah. the hitman and I would want the hitmen in this case. And I would want the family that you know paid for it. So yeah, I mean, Katie, she definitely, I think you're right. I think psychologically she had been saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. Maybe she was still hoping that she could beat the charges and mm -hmm. everyone would stay free. But she knew that if she cooperated, yeah, for her own self-serving reasons, she would get out, but everyone else would be in prison. Everyone else that was involved in this would go down. And maybe she felt like that wasn't, it was worth the risk. I don't know. She's loyal. I'll give her that. She's loyal. I mean, I would have been, I don't think she is loyal. I loyal would have been afraid. I don't think she is loyal to Sifredo. I would have been afraid that they're going to like try to pull a fast one on me and then they're going to get to Sigfredo and Luis Rivera and then Luis Rivera and Sigfredo Garcia are going to tell them how instrumental she was, right? Because it's too without late, though, her, at that point. It's too without late. her, this doesn't happen. And correct, she knows correct. that. But, it, but at that point, if they sign that deal with her and she gives them everything, and they're giving her a, basically a get-out-of-jail-free card, like the attorney said. It doesn't matter at that point. But I, I get what you're saying as far as— I think that she was like, I don't want them to come back and get me for something else, and then not, none of my kids have either parent. 
You know what I mean? So why? So I'm curious though. Why do you say you don't think she was loyal to Sigfredo? She don't give. She don't give a shit about Sigfredo. <laughs> you don't think so? No, man. <laughs> I disagree. I with mean, you. like, I just don't think that. I think she didn't want her kids to go without any parents at all, and I think she was afraid because she realized how important her role was in this. Without her, Charlie never even gets to talk to Sigfredo Garcia. He's not just going to approach somebody on the street and be like, "Hey, can you kill somebody for me?" He needs her as the go-between. She's the linchpin. Without Katie Magbanua, this no, never happens. Happen. Yeah, so she knows that. She probably feels guilty and she's like they're not just gonna let me walk free like i orchestrated this you know so she's afraid maybe they'll come back and be like oh yeah we told you we wouldn't get you for this but now we can get you for this and now neither of her kids have a parent out of prison so i think she's just worried and her lawyers genuinely thought she was innocent they genuinely thought she was innocent and they were arguing with the prosecutors on her behalf saying that she had nothing to do with this. She doesn't even know what you're talking about. And they were probably telling her, like, if you're completely innocent, like you say, we can get you off of this. Yeah. She's hoping that she can get out without having to put somebody else in in her mm-hmm. place. And yeah. then eventually she's going to figure out that that's that not going to happen. Yeah. After Katie's arrest, state's attorney Meggs was singing a different tune, saying, quote, I believe and investigators believe that at one point Meg Banua called Charlie to tell him the deal is done. What proof do we have? None at the moment. It will probably come, but we're not there yet, end quote. But he still didn't want to pull the trigger and have Charlie arrested. Law enforcement and prosecutors expected Katie to change her mind about talking as the date of her September 2019 trial approached, but she remained steadfast. Katie would share her trial with the father of her children, Sigfrido Garcia, which was awkward considering during opening statements, Katie's attorney, Tara Quas, said, quote, the only thing she's guilty of is terrible taste in men, end quote. Quas said that the police really wanted Charlie and Donna Sue Adelson, saying, quote, the government made it very clear who was behind the killing of Dan Markell. Why aren't the Adelsons here? Why aren't they charged? Because they don't have the evidence to do it, end quote. Sigfredo Garcia's lawyer basically told the jury that the testimony of Luis Rivera couldn't be trusted, saying, quote, he becomes the prosecution's parrot. This case, Sigfredo's case, is premised around Luis Rivera because the only person who can put Sigfredo Garcia at the scene the only person who can tell you that Sigfrido got out of the car and shot Dan Markell is the guy who got a deal of a lifetime, end quote. During this trial, we also got to welcome back an old favorite of ours, Jeffrey LaCase. LaCase dropped a bombshell when he stated that he believed Wendy had potentially tried to frame him for Dan Markell's murder. During that conversation, she, she didn't have any interest in spending any time with me for the rest of the week. So kind of confirmed, like, you know, this is over. Um, But then when she called me back, she had a series of detailed questions about what I would be doing on Friday. And Friday is going to be July 18th, right? Yes. And that's the date of the homicide? That's exactly right. What were her inquiries of you regarding that date? I had a trip planned to Tennessee. Uh, She was aware that I was planning to leave about 11 a.m. on Friday. I need to get to Atlanta for a early dinner, so with traffic. Uh, She knew I was departing at 11. and at, at the yoga studio or in the parking lot, she had asked um, if I was still going, if I didn't go, why not? What route I would be taking, taking um, a, lot, a lot of bizarre amount of interest in that trip that didn't make sense to me at the time, given that she didn't want to spend time with me. And how does it make sense to you now? Well, if I had left on my trip at the scheduled time that she had known about for quite a while, um, I would have driven 
pretty close to Danny Markell's house about the same time as at the murder um, in a similar looking car to the suspect vehicle. What type of vehicle did you drive? I drove a 2004 Nissan Sentra that was silver metallic gray color. So if you had followed your original plans, you would have been passing by the Markell residence or nearby there around the same time as the killers were fleeing? Yeah, I would have been at Capitol Circle in Thomasville. Sure, I would have been on the same cell tower, for example. I think my life could have been pretty complicated had I taken my original plans. All right, so you didn't, I guess, take the original plans? No, I did not. I had made a last moment, uh, last minute decision the night before to leave Thursday night instead. I had not informed uh, Ms. Edelson about that because we weren't speaking. Actually, no, I don't, I don't know that anyone I'm sure that anyone in Tallahassee knew I had changed my plans, just the people at the, the other end. All right, so you were actually in Tennessee at the time of the homicide? I was. And when you were, we've heard you were called in as a potential suspect. You get called in, and were you able to provide documentation to show that you were in Tennessee and not in Tallahassee? Yeah, I was excluded uh, fairly quickly because uh, the investigators found uh, Kmart surveillance footage of me at a Kmart in Tennessee using my credit card with my cell phone showing me there shortly after the murder, so it was impossible that I was the shooter. Right. And then was there also some similar type coincidences around the time of the trip that the killers made in June? Yes. Um, on June 6th, I had a business trip to Gainesville and I departed at 11 a.m on a Friday, June 6th, which Ms. Adelson would have known about by March. So really I take two trips out of Tallahassee in my car the, the whole spring and summer semester, both time him and try to kill Danny Marco. Okay. Any further contact with Wendy after the yoga date? We, uh, about 10 days after the murder, she reached out to a mutual friend and we had a few phone calls. And during one of those phone calls, did you learn about a dinner where Wendy had become ill at the table? Yes, I did learn about that. And what did you learn about that dinner? Um, that she went out to dinner with Charlie for what he called a celebration dinner. He said something to her. She spontaneously vomited on the table. And this would have been within... How much time after the homicide? Within a few weeks. Was it specified that the celebration was in reference to Dan Markell's death as opposed to anything else? Wasn't specified. Okay. But whatever it was, that's the dinner where she vomited. That's right. That's right. So first of all, this is a couple weeks after Dan Markell died. Yeah. That Wendy and Charlie had a celebratory dinner. Now yep. Jeff says it wasn't specified that it was because of Dan being dead, but I mean... It's inferred. What is there? What is there to celebrate when your ex-husband and the father of your children has just been murdered? What are you exactly celebrating? So, yeah. it's interesting. But it's because interesting. If it's a celebratory yeah. dinner, then she, Wendy would have been aware of it, and she probably wouldn't have thrown up in that moment because she, you know, she would have known what they were going there for. It sounds almost like if this is all true, right? That she uh, she was surprised by what Charlie said. Is that you know that would maybe that the nerve react nervous reaction to it. I mean, it could have been like, oh, it's a celebratory dinner. And then while they're having dinner, Charlie is like, oh, you're welcome, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. You know, and then she all of a sudden is like realizes like, oh, shit. You what, know? what he did. Yeah. Either that or she knew and the scallops weren't good. 
That's also possible. Or she knew. And then Charlie starts talking about like, well, the cops could do this. So make sure you don't do this and do this. And then she got stressed. She got panicked. Yeah, she panicked. And then, out. And then yeah. threw up. But either things. way, Jeff feels that Wendy had potentially been setting him up for Dan Markell's murder. And it becomes more interesting when you consider this theory I found on Reddit, which was posted by somebody named Kate M14. Kate writes, quote, I truly think brother and sister both used relatively new romantic partners to help execute their plan. Timing speaks volumes. Charlie discovers a cute dental receptionist, relentlessly pursued her, someone's words, can't recall who, possibly assumed she had bad boy connections, end quote. This Reddit user goes on to say that, per Katie's testimony, she and Charlie had their first or second date around Halloween 2013, and Charlie then asked Katie if she knew a person who could harm someone, and she told him that she did. So pretty much right off the bat, as soon as Charlie starts dating Katie, he's asking her, hey, do you know do you know somebody who can kill somebody else, right? And Katie's like, yeah, I do. Charlie and Katie then dated for months. He bought her things. He took her on expensive vacations. All the while, he was telling her about what was happening between his sister and her husband during their horrible divorce. Katie testified that Charlie told her his mother wasn't sleeping or eating because of all the stress. And he told her how they had tried to offer Dan a million dollars to go away so that Wendy could move with the kids. Katie said, quote, he painted this picture that this was a terrible man and was making his family go through a lot custody wise with his sister. End quote. Let's go back to that Reddit thread where KM14 lays out why they believe Wendy selected Jeff to be her fall guy. She forced Jeff to watch How to Train Your Dragon 2 on that broken television so that he would be able to confirm that her TV was broken and in need of repair, which would give her that alibi of the Geek Squad guy at her house that morning. She shows up at a coffee shop that she knew Jeff went to a lot. So Jeff went to this coffee shop that she shows up to with this other man. All the time. He was a regular there. So she goes there specifically so that Jeff will see her. And it's possible that Wendy wanted to create this jealous tension and maybe have Jeff confront her in public so there would be witnesses that he has this tendency to like fly into a jealous rage. So when her ex-husband turns up dead... Well, you know, Jeff Jeff has a temper. Jeff doesn't want Wendy talking to other men. He hates Dan Markell because Wendy hates Dan Markell. Wendy knew Jeff was going to be driving to Tennessee at almost the exact time Dan Markell's murder was supposed to go down, and she made sure to clarify with him the details of when he would be leaving and which route he would be taking. This is Jeff LaCasse saying this stuff. This isn't the police. This isn't the prosecution. This is Jeff putting things together in the aftermath. And then during that exchange outside the yoga studio, Wendy seems fine, but then after they leave, she goes home and sends Jeff an email asking for him to not contact her for a week so that she would have further evidence and a paper trail that he was jealous and that she was potentially scared of him. You know, this is a lot of stuff that's kind of gelling together. And there's some who wonder if Wendy was even dating Jeff even though she had no plans to settle down with him or marry him, simply so that she could continue filling his head with so many negative things about Dan Markell that he would eventually go after Dan himself for her. So maybe she was trying to create this like rivalry between the two men to the point where because she knew, you know, that that Jeff was completely like obsessed with her. Wendy knew she was able to cast a spell on men. She even bragged to Jeff about it. She knew Jeff was completely infatuated with her. You know, and Jeff said that all they ever talked about was Dan and how horrible he was. And Wendy would flinch if Jeff raised his voice. And he started to wonder if she'd become if she'd been physically abused by Dan. And he began to hate Dan just as much as Wendy and her family did until 
he started to talk to other people outside of the Adelsons and realized, hey, this Dan Markell guy is not really that bad of a guy, but Wendy made him seem terrible, right? So either Wendy's trying to set him up for the murder or she's trying to cause enough anger in him because he's so in love with her that he would want to do anything for her, including taking the person who was causing her so much stress and anxiety out of her life. And if Jeff LaCase had been a different person, less emotionally intelligent, less controlled, he may have attempted to hurt Dan so that Wendy could feel safe, especially if he felt that, you know, once the stress of the divorce and custody battle was removed, Wendy might feel more amenable to making a real commitment to him and they could live happily ever after. It is an interesting theory and certainly something to consider for people who think that Wendy was involved. It absolutely is. And uh, shout out to KM14, have a day, Reddit user on Crime (laughs) Weekly. I think that's a first for us where you've Maybe you've done it before. I've but done it before. Sometimes these Reddit users, man, they come up with some good stuff. And I'm like, damn. When she hear, when this gets back to her, she's going to be like, they're like, hey, you're, you're on Crime Weekly. She's going to be like, what? Yeah, with this great theory. And it does line up a lot of the facts. Now, could be a situation where, you know, again, you, revisionist history, you're able to take what you know and make it fit a narrative. But I don't see it that way. And KM14, here we go, sudden there again, has no skin in the game. She's just being a good detective, looking at the facts of the case as she knows them and kind of filling in the, in the blanks and the puzzle pieces work. They work. And I, I think that the theory she laid out is a very plausible scenario where they were looking for fall guys, especially when you tie this in with what Jeff said at trial. We just listened to that video. It seems awful uh, convenient. And the behavior which she displayed, as Jeff said, was very bizarre. It was an unusual interest in something that really was trivial didn't really matter but at this particular point it did and uh if if we go back i believe it was last episode or even the episode before tying it back to that interaction on the couch where there's like a perfectly good tv in the other room but it, it didn't make so much sense then but she's insisting that they watch this video on this broken television screen and we didn't really go any further than that with it in that episode but here bringing it back now you hear that fact again and you go, wow, actually, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So, again, shout out to uh, Kate M14 coming from the rafters with the Reddit with the Reddit post. Yeah. And and I mean, basically, the whole thing is bizarre. Right. So she goes to South Florida. Wendy goes to South Florida. Her and Jeff aren't in like a ton of communication. They're kind of arguing. She comes back from South Florida and all of a sudden she wants to have a date and she wants to meet up with him. They have a fine date. And then they're leaving each other at the yoga studio, blah, blah, blah. She's like, hey, you still going on your trip to Tennessee, blah, blah, blah. And then when she gets home, she sends him an email being like, don't contact me for a week. And that just so happened to be the week that Dan Markell's murdered. So she can now say like, oh, I don't know, Jeff. He was probably so mad because I said, don't contact me. And he had to lash out at somebody. But she still wants to make sure, like, you're still going to Tennessee on this day? Are you still going to be taking this route that's going to bring you by Dan Markell's house? Like, you know, she's checking in on things. So it's suspicious. Like, why would she care so much? And I cannot seem to fathom why Wendy would care so much about Jeff's trip to Tennessee because I really don't think she really cared about Jeff all that much. Like, she clearly didn't want to be in a serious relationship with him. She was seeing other people. Why all of these things are happening, it's either she just has no self-awareness and she uses people or there's a purpose for everything. And and trying to figure out which one is which is not going to be easy. But either way, Jeff thought she could potentially be setting him up for this murder and And so we really need to take that into consideration. Absolutely. Let's take our last break and we'll be right back. 
Most of you have probably heard me sing the praises of Pros and their truly custom made-to-order hair care. Switching to a custom routine from Pros was one of the best things I've done for my hair, and the results I'm seeing just keep getting better and better. My hair's always been really long and thick, but it goes through phases where it just becomes unmanageable. I don't know if it's the weather. I don't know if it's what I'm eating. I don't know if it's hormones or stress or whatever, but there was always certain times when my hair, I just wouldn't have a good hair day no matter what I did. But with pros, I've noticed a huge difference, mostly in the texture of my hair. Um, It's shinier, it's smoother, it's less frizzy, it's more manageable. It just seems to do what I want more often than not. And pros knows that there's more to you than just your hair type. Pros has given over 1 million consultations with their in-depth hair quiz, which is exactly how I got started and how you'll get started too. And remember, I said I I wasn't sure what was causing issues with my hair, whether it was the weather or stress or my diet or hormones or whatever, I didn't know what it was. But with the pros um, in-depth hair quiz, they're going to ask you questions that are going to give you the answers to that. So they're going to ask you things like your zip code because they want to know what kind of climate are you living in. They're going to ask you about your eating habits, your damage level of your hair, exercise, um, do you dye your hair, things like that. What kind of heat tools do you use on your hair? And by analyzing over 85 personal factors, pros handpicks clean, sustainably sourced ingredients that get you closer to your hair goals with every wash. One of my favorite features is Pros' Review and Refine tool, and this is going to let you tweak your formula for any reason. Let's say you change your hair color, so you bleached your hair, or you're moving from New York to Florida, so you're moving to a more humid climate. Um, Even if you change your diet, you go vegan all of a sudden, that's going to allow you to sort of tweak your formula so that you're getting a formula that really is satisfying all your hair needs based on where you're at in your life. And as a carbon neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon neutral. And the best part is if you're not 100% positive that Pros is the best hair care you've ever had, they'll take the products back, no questions asked. So there's really nothing to risk and nothing to lose here. Besides, you know, if you don't try Pros, you might be missing out on your best hair ever. So Derek's going to tell you how you can check Pros out for yourself and give it a try. Custom made-to-order hair care from Pros has your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 50% off your first subscription order today plus... 15% off and free shipping every subscription order after that. Just go to pros.com slash crime weekly. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash crime weekly for your free in-depth hair consultation and 50% off your first subscription order. Check them out. So during the joint trial of Catherine Magbanua and Sigfrido Garcia, Garcia's lawyer told the jury that it was most likely Luis Rivera who was the driving force in Dan Markell's murder. It was Rivera, after all, who was a prominent leader in the Latin Kings. And this attorney did admit eventually that Sigfrido Garcia had been in Tallahassee with Rivera at the time that Dan Markell was shot. But Sigfredo had been there for a drug deal, not a murder-for-hire thing. It was not Sigfredo who had shot Dan. It was Luis Rivera, the person who also most likely was selling Charlie Adelson drugs, which is how they knew each other, right? So Sigfredo's attorney is trying to cut Sigfredo out of this altogether. Charlie Adelson contacted 
uh, Luis Garcia because he knew him because Luis Garcia sold Charlie drugs that's, that Charlie would then sell to other people. And so there's no Sigfrido Garcia. There's no Katie Magbanua. It's only Luis and Charlie, and they're trying to, like, kind of cancel Sigfrido out altogether. Now, the state would bring in a forensic specialist with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. His name was Robert Sean Yao, and Yao testified that based on the downward trajectory of the bullets, he believed that the person who had shot Dan Markell was at least six feet tall, like Sigfredo Garcia, who was 6'1", I believe, whereas Luis Rivera was only 5'4". So they kind of used these ballistics to show, yes, both Garcia and Rivera were there, but Garcia is over six feet tall. Luis Rivera's short and therefore could not have been the person who shot this gun based on the trajectory of the bullets. When Detective Craig Isom was on the stand being cross-examined by Katie's defense team, he had to admit that Luis Rivera had been given access to the police department's investigative reports during discovery, and so Isom would have no way of knowing if Rivera was telling the truth or just repeating the narrative already laid out by the Tallahassee Police Department. Detective Isom was also questioned about Rivera's first proffer statement not being recorded, so no one was able to compare his statement then to his trial testimony to see if they were consistent or if he had changed his story in important and relevant areas. The state also called Wendy Adelson to the stand during this trial, and Wendy put on a dazzling smile and poured on all of the charm, showcasing the same behavior as she had with Detective Isom during her police interview, although many of her statements contradicted things that she said during that interview. And her statements also contradicted things that many people had heard her say before, such as the fact that she hated Tallahassee and wanted out. During the trial, Wendy asserted that this was not true. She loved Tallahassee. She said she was actually glad the judge had ruled against her motion to relocate because she was so happy in Tallahassee and happy with her job at Florida State University. And when you separated initially in the fall of 2012, did you move to South Florida with the kids? No, I did not. You didn't go to South Florida with the kids? No, I did not. Was it your desire during that time to move with the children to South Florida? I would say right then, no, it wasn't. Was there a time during the time that you were living there at Aqua Ridge, Aqua Ridge that you determined that you would like to move to South Florida with the children? There was. Right. And were your parents very involved in trying to facilitate that relocation? My parents were supportive of me moving to South Florida. Would you describe your parents as being over-involved in your personal business? As compared to other people's parents? Yeah. I don't know. And you mentioned that you did develop a desire to move to South Florida. Did you file a motion to that effect on January 14, 2013? That sounds, that sounds, I did file a motion. I don't remember the exact date. Okay. But that sounds about right. Was that motion granted or denied? That motion was denied. And were you upset about being stuck in Tallahassee? I was relieved. You were relieved. You wanted to stay in Tallahassee. I was happy at my job. So in my opinion, Wendy is doing this because she knows very well that the point of contention between herself and Dan at the time of his murder was this very issue. And she knew that the prosecution and the police believed it was the motive for members of her family to want Dan dead. And what gets me is that Wendy can't answer a question directly. And I suppose we would expect this because, after all, she is a lawyer. But when the state's attorney, Georgia Kappelman, asks her about the divorce, she says, like, would you consider your divorce from Dan to be 
be a nasty one. And Wendy answers very primly, I think most divorces aren't very pleasant. And when Kappelman pushes her, asking Wendy, but this one was very unpleasant, Wendy responded, I found getting divorced to be unpleasant. Yes. And Wendy seems very forgetful about the details of her divorce, which doesn't make sense to me because not only is she a lawyer, and not only am I sure she went over each document involved in the proceedings herself, but there were a lot of personal attacks and and bad tactics used on both sides that were not very nice. And you'd think she'd remember these things. Jeff LaCase said it was all she could talk about during that time, but suddenly her memory's foggy because she's being very careful. She claims she doesn't remember Dan's allegations that Donna Sue, her mother, Donna Sue, had made disparaging comments about him or that she had said he was trying to take her sunshines away. She downplays the hate that her family held for Dan Markell, even though we heard her in the interview with Detective Isom saying, like, you don't get it. It's real bad. They really hate him. But all of a sudden... Uh, they didn't hate him that much. Um, what about Dan Markell? Did your family like him? Do you want to specify a point in time? Um, well, I'm specifically thinking of a statement you made in the interview after his death, where you indicated that your parents were very angry with him. Is that accurate? At that point in time, during our divorce, I, I do think they were angry with him. They felt like he had treated me badly. And the motion to preclude your mom from having unsupervised contact with your kids, that was still pending at the time of his murder, correct? That's possible. I mean, I I don't think anyone took that motion very seriously. Okay. Did your mom take it seriously? I don't think so. Did Dan Markell take it seriously? I don't know how Danny felt about a motion. If he wrote the motion, he was probably taking it seriously. I do have to say, not that it matters at all. She just comes off as very unlikable. Yeah, very. And I mean, again, it it doesn't matter what we think we like her or not. We're talking about guilt or innocence here. But it just I just I had to put it I had to put it out there. (laughs) It doesn't matter what we think, but she sucks. (laughs) She kind of just comes off as it. Like you said, I think you've even said arrogant, just very like like it's not like nothing is serious. Okay, like you like you forgot what you were there to talk about. And it's annoying because Donna Sue Adelson took this motion very seriously you know that dan had said i don't want her around my kids i don't want my kids around their grandmother because of what they're saying about me she was livid we read the emails we saw the emails where she was like this man has to be stopped at all costs and wendy's up here like i don't think anybody took it very seriously i think you know it's like it is what it is and it's like come on man i do now i have a new trigger now and that's watching a lawyer cross-examine a lawyer it is mind-numbing it's tough it's tough because they're both very so like everything strategic the way she's asking the question and the way that the other one's answering it it's like everything is to and as the lawyer's asking wendy questions she knows what she's trying to get out of it so she's she's countering it with a question or just downplaying it or or water uh, you know muddying the water it just it's very it's it's tough to watch. It's on both sides. It reminds me of like, you know, Harry Potter when when they they're trying to like run through the wall at platforms and nine and three quarters. And for some reason, it wasn't open. And they just like ran straight into the wall and bounced back. Like this is what questioning Wendy has to feel like you just be running into that wall and bouncing back over and over again. She's the opposite of Charlie because Charlie's emotional. He's getting yeah. like sassy. You know, he's like letting the lawyer know how much contempt he has for her. Whereas Wendy is just like... She's measured. 
Yeah. She's like, very you're, measured. You're, you're not going to shake me, even though she's contradicting herself, yeah. even though what she's saying couldn't possibly be true. But it's her opinion. I don't think my mom took it that seriously. Yeah. Well, what about all these emails? Well, that's just my opinion. I don't think she took it too seriously. I'm not lying. But you are. You're lying because you knew she took oh, it I don't seriously. Know what, I don't know what Danny thought. I don't know what he thought. <laughs> he he wrote the motion. He must have taken it seriously. But we 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 were just like whatever, you know, whatever. Go go off, Dan Markell. Go off, King. Like it's just so annoying. And Wendy does the same thing when asked questions about her brother Charlie, and she answers these questions with her usual giggling and playful tone, as if none of what is happening is actually that important at all. It's almost as if she feels like it's ridiculous that she's even being asked these questions. The entire time it's as if she doesn't actually feel or realize the gravity of the situation that they're there to discuss the murder of the father of her children. Charlie graduated high school? He did. College? He did. Dental school? He did. So he has a substantial educational background? Yes. Would you consider him to be book smart? He did very well in his classes. So that would would eventually be yes. yes. What about street smart? Do you think he was kind of street smart? I think he's good with people. And would it be fair to say that he has a wide range of friends, different types of friends? He has a lot of friends. Would you say, oh, are there certain friends that he goes out nightclubbing with? I don't know. He doesn't talk to me about nightclubbing. Well, when you have, when he has social events, do you ever go out with him socially? I haven't in a long time. I'm pretty busy with my kids. But I have once or twice gone out with him. So your single brother is a pretty handsome guy, right? I think he's handsome. Right. We've seen his pictures. Good looking guy. Uh, never been married, right? No. And what kind of car does he have? Um, for a while, what does he have? What is he driving right now? Well, he likes cars. Me, like he, he has a lot of cars, right? And these aren't like Hondas or Toyotas. They're Mercedeses and Ferraris, right? He drove an unmarked police car for a while. But that wasn't my question. My question was, does he have a, did he ever have a Mercedes? I think so, yeah. Okay, and it wasn't like a C300. It was like a 5 Series, right? I honestly don't know anything about cars. Well, it was the bigger Mercedes, right? Yeah, it was big. It was the bigger one. And he also had a Ferrari, right? I know he had one really fancy car, but I don't remember what what brand it was. So you're telling this jury that you don't remember if your brother had a Ferrari? Cars are really not important to me. You saw mine. (laughs) I drove a minivan. Well, but you're not your brother. Right? I am not my brother. No, I knew he had a fancy car. I just don't remember if it was a Porsche or if it was a Ferrari. It was something fancy. Something kind of fancy, right? I'm not going to beat a dead horse here. She just comes off as unlikable. Maybe it's just her. You know, there's people that are really nice that I, that, you know, my friends, there's people that I work with in television that I'll remain nameless that people are like, oh, I can't stand that person. And they're super nice in person. But uh, in real life. But yeah, it happens. I'm sure you get that about me sometimes where people are like, wow, Derek really is just the, the worst on Crime Weekly. And you have to defend me. And I'm sure you defend me adamantly every time it happens. Of course I do. Of course I do. But <laughs> this is objectively just annoying. Wendy is objectively an annoying it, person. It, it, it is. It's just it's just, you. the context and the way you set it up makes it 10 times worse because you, you reminded everyone what we're oh, here the for. Con- the context makes it the facts makes it worse. Makes I mean. it worse for her. Makes <laughs> yeah, it worse, makes it for, worse her. for her. And I mean, it does seem like it, it's possible 
and and maybe guys wait on in the comments below but it feels like the majority of people even if you're not a car person if your brother who you're super close with has a ferrari buys a, he buys a ferrari which i think universally everyone recognizes there's two cars lamborghinis and ferraris they're very distinctive in the way they look so it's more to me and we have no way to prove it where she knows this guy is not her friend, this this person who's inter, you know interviewing her, examining mm -hmm. across examining her, and she he's trying to play like nice guy with her, so she again is just reciprocating that, trying to, but it's all fake, it's all fake on both sides, and there's moments in there where you can see it because she's playing really dumb, and mm. the, the lawyer's like you you don't know that your brother bought a Ferrari, like you don't know the difference, like it, I'm not asking you what you drive. You you've seen Ferraris. You're living in Florida. You've probably seen a Ferrari. Yeah, or Yeah, she's living in Miami, before. dude. Tell me you aren't you aren't seeing my freaking Ferraris exactly. all over Miami? Come on. Exactly. And and the whole thing. They're super close. They're super close. They're super close. But yet you don't know anything about them at the same time. You're just yeah. It's annoying to me because she's a brilliant person. Well, brilliant. she's doing it on purpose. She's doing I know, it on she's, purpose. She's playing dumb, but it's like. We know your credentials, Wendy. We know how smart you are. So now playing dumb just seems manipulative. Yep. You know what I mean? And when she's asked, like, oh, is Charlie book smart? She gives, like, a little smirk, like, mm. I'm smarter. She can't even just answer the question and be like, yes, he's smart. Like, yeah. move on. She's got to add her little, like, Wendy-ism to it. And it just drives me crazy. Every time in court this happens a lot where even the most – Simple answers. The 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 witness or the defendant will give you the bare minimum. They're never because they know the lawyer who's cross examining them is trying to set them up. They're trying to lead them somewhere. They don't know where that is yet, so they're going to create boundaries and hurdles along the way. And that's what she's doing here. She's just putting bump after bump in the road. So as this lawyer who has an idea, a preconceived plan of how they're going to ask her questions to set her up for the final, like the yes, the exactly. knockout punch. She yes. knows where that there's something coming, so she's just going to stumble along the way through so that it's not clean and concise. And it's she's it's trying all, to lead him on like side quests. Yeah, side you know, quest he drove and, an unmarked police car. Right, it's just <laughs> it's all just deflection. And so the jury members are sitting there, and instead of this lawyer, how he envisioned it in his head, like so this happened, right? And you knew about this car, and he's a smart guy, right? And then he hits her with, with all that being said, how wouldn't he know? Like, there's that final question that's yeah. obvious to the jury. She's she's trying to prevent that, mm -hmm. which I mean, I is understandable. But at the same time, like she's just being so obvious about it that you couldn't really look at this and be like, this person has the best interest. Like she cares about this being solved. You know, she's not trying to help. And listen, I only want to play one more clip because it's literally hilarious. Minutes before this clip. Uh, this part of the trial where this clip happens, Wendy had been asked about having certain names programmed into her phone and about having her ex-husband, Dan Markell's contact listed as Jibbers. Now, remember, her and her family called Dan Jibbers because he talked so much. So just a couple minutes after, you know, Kaplman asks her about having Dan Markell's name in her phone as Jibbers, they're talking about Wendy and Donna Sue exchanging emails during which they refer to Dan as Jibbers. And a humorous exchange happens between Wendy, the judge, and Georgia Kappelman, which I believe shows that Wendy is not completely honest about certain details, like not even not answering things directly, but just straight out lying about things. Jibbers was a nickname that I gave Danny when he was being really difficult and causing me a lot of 
pain was sort of a nickname I gave him to make him feel less threatening. So it was a derogatory thing? I wouldn't say it was derogatory. Did you call him that to his face? No, I called him Danny to his face. Okay. And gibberish would be what? How would you spell that? I don't know that I ever spelled it out. Um, in the emails, I think it's spelled with a J, but I guess you could spell it with a G. J-I-B-B-E-R-S. That would be one way to... Ms. Adelson, you had Mr. Markell's phone number programmed into your phone as J-I-B-B-E-R-S, didn't you? That's right. Yeah, and again being redundant here this proves the point she is in defense mode and like play dumb mode and she continues that not realizing that she's doing it with the judge but she's continuing to give alternate options to to everything even the most simple things like how do you spell gibbers she's not even going to give that one and say hey, you know what yeah gibbers is j-i-b-b-e-r-s that's you know that's it well there's alternate ways to spell it you can do whatever you want everything you can use has a g if you want i suppose everything's <laughs> a multiple option and and the judge by the way is just asking her for the spelling he's probably taking notes yeah and because she's in that mode where even the most simple thing like if the lawyer had asked her well it's sunny today right um, I mean, it's it's bright outside. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a little bit overcast. She's never going to agree. It depends. 100%. Am I wearing sunglasses? Right. Because if I'm wearing sunglasses, it wouldn't be that sunny. Right. And oh, you know, it gets pretty sunny in you know other parts of the country, even more sunny than here. Although this is Florida, but you know, I've been overseas, and so so it, that's just the mode she's in right now. Every time she gets a question, it's like, okay, how can I dilute this question and answer so that this interaction this this part of this examination becomes a moot point and so when the judge throws her off and she turns to him he's just asking a straightforward question she's wrote the name in emails she's, fi and she's in her phone and, well that's why the lawyer said that which was a great yeah. which was a great move because as the lawyer is asking her a straightforward answer because she's in that deflection mode she's not even going to just say to him yeah i i spelt it j-i-b-b-e-r-s it's well you like, I don't know. It could be spelled with it. I think even she almost said, like, I've only said it. I, she might have said that in this thing. But that's when the lawyer's like, oh, by the way, in your phone, you have it as J-I-B-B-E-R-S. But they just talked about it. Right. I'm not, like, it's not even like it was like a surprise. Like, we caught you. It was like minutes before this. They had talked about how Wendy had programmed Dan into her phone as jibbers. And then Wendy's like, it was just a nickname, you know, that I gave him to take his power away and make me feel less scared. No, it wasn't. It was a nickname you gave him because you hated him and he talked a lot and you and your family made fun of him behind his back using this name even when you were married. So, no, it wasn't, oh, I gave him that name to make him seem less scary. That is stupid, when Wendy. He was, when he was mean to me. Um, here's what I'll say. And it's a little throwback to a Big Brother reference as far as my strategic play in there, right? It's not always what you say. It's how you make people feel. And the visceral reaction that you and I are having about this examination with, with Wendy, there's a group of people called the jury that are human <laughs> beings just like you and I who are also watching this interaction. And it doesn't take someone who covers true crime every week or a detective to see what she's doing and to see how some of the most simple questions are not being answered directly. And it's annoying and irritating. And if I had to guess... A lot of the jury members were very turned off by this interaction mm -hmm. as well, which is not only going to hurt her credibility, but 
Charlie's credibility her as well. Brother, they they see what, what they're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I think her testimony hurt. Charlie's I don't disagree. Case. In the small snippets I've saw, saw I'm turned off by it. I'm because honestly, the the defense attorney for Charlie was pretty good. Like he pointed out the inconsistencies in Luis Rivera's testimony and he pointed out, you know, how the police hadn't recorded Rivera's first proffer statement and basically saying, like, you guys just told him what to say. And the jury may have been buying it or at least maybe felt like that was enough you know, of reasonable doubt. But then Wendy gets up there and starts acting like a damn fool, really acting suspicious, if you ask me. And the jury's like, hold on, hold on a second. What? There's something wrong with this family, Mm -hmm. right? So I think having her up there truly hurt him. Doesn't sound like it helped based on what I'm hearing. Well, during Luis Rivera's testimony during this trial, and this would be Sigfredo Garcia's trial and Katie Magbanua's trial, he was forced to admit some things that didn't line up with the story he told law enforcement. First of all, Rivera had claimed to have been sitting in the driver's seat of the rented Prius at the time that Dan Markell was shot. Katie's defense attorney asked him if he knew that Dan had put his hand up to his face while being shot. And on the stand, Rivera said, yes, he did know this, not understanding that if he he had seen what Dan's hands were doing at the time he was shot, it meant he probably was not sitting by the car. He was probably standing right next to his childhood friend, Sigfredo Garcia, when that trigger was pulled. One of the last witnesses to take the stand was Katie Magbanua herself. On the stand and under oath, Katie testified that she had nothing to do with Dan Markell's murder. She had not enlisted Sigfredo Garcia to commit the crime at the request of Charlie Adelson, and she'd never taken money from Charlie and given it to Luis and Sigfredo. Katie talked about how she'd been told that if she gave up Charlie, she could go home. And when her lawyer asked if she had information that Charlie was involved with Dan's death, Katie responded that she did not have personal information. She only knew what she had seen throughout the trial. Her lawyer asked Katie if, based on what she had seen, did she think Charlie was involved with Dan's death? And Katie replied, yes. So she really does not give a shit about Charlie. She's not trying to protect Charlie. She literally is just trying to protect herself and Sigfredo. And if she could have, during that first trial, come out and just told the truth about everything, it would have meant Sigfredo was arrested and and going to prison. But it also would have meant Charlie would probably be implicated. But we also have to understand here that Katie knows very well what Charlie's power and and influence is in the area. And she's probably going to think like, you know, these rich people, these freaking rich white people always be getting, you know, getting off for these crimes. I'm I'm going to go out and say something and this dude's still not going to get charged or at least convicted. And me and my husband are going to be behind bars and our children aren't going to have, you know, parents around. So she's being very careful. Were they were they married? I know they have a kid together. Were they married? So they weren't married. She calls him. I always say husband because she she refers to him. Yeah, she refers to him as her husband and he refers to her as his wife. They have kids together. They live together. Uh, What what do they call that? A common law marriage sometimes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's good as being married. You're living together, have kids together. You're congrats. You're married. But the jury would deliberate and ultimately decide that Sigfredo Garcia had been involved in the crime 
but many of them couldn't find it in themselves to believe Luis Rivera 100 percent when he had pointed to Garcia as the one who pulled the trigger, ending Dan's life. As for Katie, the jury didn't believe her fully either. She had been caught in multiple inconsistencies and changing stories during her testimony, and the fact that she was sleeping with Charlie Adelson made it hard to view her as completely knowledge-free, considering this jury seemed to believe that one or more of the Adelsons had been involved with Dan's murder plot. So we have the jury for Sigfrido and Katie's trial, and they're in the jury room, like, deliberating, and they couldn't really all agree on what was going on with Sigfrido. They couldn't really all agree on what was going on with Katie, but they all seemed to agree that Charlie Adelson was involved, right? Oh, yeah. They thought that there was enough evidence, even though it wasn't his trial at all. And they're like, okay, so we we definitely feel like Charlie's involved. So now we have to figure out, like, how involved was Katie and how involved was Sigfrido. They had cell phone records, call transcripts, money trails. Katie claimed she worked at the Adelson Institute to explain why she was getting checks, but they brought employees from the Institute in to testify. And those employees were like, no, we had never seen her here. She does not work here a day in her life. She does not work here. And at the end of the day, all jurors but one had decided to find Sigfrido and Katie guilty. However, the one juror who was holding out was finally convinced to change her mind about Sigfrido, but not Katie. And then this juror even got another jury member to side with her about not, you know, going after Katie and finding her guilty. After hours of discussion, the jury returned with their verdict. They found Sigfrido Garcia guilty of first-degree murder, but they had not been able to agree on Katie's involvement, leaving the judge to have no choice but to declare a mistrial. Katie would remain behind bars until a trial could be rescheduled for her, but this was during COVID times, so the trial happened in 2019. At the end of 2019, then COVID hit, so this new trial kept getting pushed off and pushed off for another two years while she sat in prison. But after sitting in prison for a few years during COVID, Katie realized, hey, this sucks. I don't really want to be here anymore. And then she's finally going to start speaking out against Charlie. Yeah, and and at especially that point, Sigfredo's behind exactly. bars. He's done. Sigfredo's already been found guilty. So Katie has nothing to lose to, at no, this point. Yeah, absolutely. But while all of this happened and while they were waiting, the prosecution went back to work, intent on bringing at least some of the Adelsons to justice for their part in stealing a loving father and a brilliant legal mind from the world. And that's where we're going to pick up next time. Yeah, looking forward to it. It's a great series. We, we've we kind of gone through the this whole arc with you guys where we're on the back end of it now. We have a couple, at least one or two parts left, but we've gone through the foundation of the story. We've gone through the actual incident. We've talked about the investigation, and now we're into the trial portions where the people that were identified through the investigation are now having their opportunity to explain their behaviors that were displayed. And at this point, so far, I think we can all agree they're not doing a very good job. And so we'll keep rolling with it. There's still a lot more to the story. And Stephanie was telling me before we started that there's even newer things that have come out that yeah, I might I got not two, be I got with. two more parts for you. I'm going to wrap it up. It'll be eight parts. This is six. We have seven and eight. I'll, I'll fit everything in there one way or the other. But, yeah. And I appreciate everyone and all the positive feedback so far on this series. It's been very well received. And a lot of you are not going ahead. You may know the case, but you're not going ahead and diving into the details and allowing us to go through that with you. So really en enjoying the series for what it, you know, for what it is and to get that complete picture. And we're going to, we're going to, uh, by the end of part eight, we're going to wrap this up and we're going to have a conclusion to most of this story. And uh, I, I just want to reiterate, because we haven't talked about it a ton, except for the beginning, 
we're we're talking a lot about the 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 offenders in this case, but let's keep in mind what happened here. We we lost a guy who, by all accounts, was a was a brilliant man, and most importantly, a great father. And there are mm-hmm. two children that are affected by this, regardless of where you lie on this case. So it's it's it, it's entertaining to go through this investigation with you, but it's also it's a little demoralizing to to think about why we're here because we we yeah. shouldn't be. Yeah, it's it's it sucks, but I mean, at least we know that the people who were responsible are are going down one by one behind one bars. One by one, so, knocking them know, out, taking them out. My, no. As my uncle always says, one by one is good fishing. Absolutely, and I love that this whole group of people who think they're smarter than the than the uh, the the officials investigating it. How quickly they change their tune when they start to get identified and start turning on each other and the cannibal cannibalization begins. Mm-hmm. It's great to watch. I love it. Yep. Is it cannibalization is a word? Yeah, I think so. It sounded great. Cannibalization. cannibalization occurs. Can- it might be cannibalism. Cannibalization, I believe, is completely inaccurate if word. It is, Probably not used a lot, but if it isn't a word, it should be. We should ask Wendy. She's so smart. We'll ask <laughs> well said. <laughs> Guys, as always, we appreciate you being here. If you haven't already and you like what we're doing here, consider subscribing. You can subscribe right down below. Just click, click that subscription button. Turn your bell notification on. And if you're if you're living under a rock, we never do this, but if you're living under a rock, Stephanie actually has a YouTube channel. I don't know if you know this, Stephanie Arlo. So if you're not already subscribed to her channel, go over there. Check it out. Subscribe to hers. You may or may not know of her. She happens to have a few subscribers over there. It's a little thing she does on a, a weekly basis. So yeah. you may have you may have heard of it side, once or twice. A side quest. It's a little side <laughs> little side hustle she's got going on. Yeah. And I also have a channel as well. It's Derek Lavasser. I do the podcast Detective Perspective over there. That's all I really have on that channel, but it is under my name. Go subscribe to that as well. We do different stuff on those channels. So we got plenty of content for you. If you yep. have time during the week. We got plenty of options for you. That's going to do it for us. Everyone stay safe out there. We will see you next week. Bye.